All right, Galatians chapter number three, and we're going to begin by asking a very common, continued to be asked question. Simply, how were Old Testament saints saved? How were Old Testament saints saved? So this morning, our subject is dealing with the faith of justification. The faith of justification. On the surface, the question, how were the Old Testament saints saved, sounds like a legitimate question. However, with a careful consideration of Scripture, it leads us to respond with an answer, with a question, why would it be different? So the question, how were Old Testament saints saved, how were they? We respond by the question, how would it be different, or more specifically, why would it be different? Where did the idea of a different way of salvation come from? Uh, That idea has not always been. There is a point in time when somebody uh, came up with this idea that there is a different way of salvation. Uh, It's still believed. It's still taught today. And if that is the case, which it is, uh, why is this a problem? Why is it a problem to teach a different way of salvation for the Old Testament saint as compared to the New Testament saint? Ultimately, that answer comes from every other question we might ask, which comes from the Word of God itself. And I believe it is very clear, especially when we see it from Galatians 3 this morning. So if you have your Bible there, let's quickly uh, but accurately uh, do a quick exposition of Galatians 3 and look at the first 14 verses. Now, of course, we're not going to go verse by verse uh, in a sense this morning where we're going to cover every thought and every verse. We just, uh, the time's not going to allow for that. But I do want us to look at what the Apostle Paul's writing here, look at the people he mentions, and look at the phrases and the words he uses to describe Abraham. Of course, all would be in agreement today that Abraham would have been an Old Testament saint. I don't think there's anybody here who would say he was a New Testament saint. Uh, However, we do want to look at those phrases that are mentioned with him. Galatians 3, verse number 1, and look at the, the way Paul begins this statement. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Let me just stop there just for a moment and notice that Paul is not sugarcoating. He's not watering down anything here. He's using very strong language. He's using language such as foolish Galatians, and he's using the word bewitched. Bewitched is an occult word. It's a word that it means to deceive. It means to trick. Uh, And he mentions that you of all people who had Christ set before you, Uh, This should not be this problem. This should not be an issue. He says, verse 2, This only what I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. What had happened with the Galatians is there had been a a very subtle uh, infringing upon their belief system where they were tempted to go back to the law being the way of salvation or the keeping of the law determining their conversion. And Paul asked them a hypothetical, but a question they would have known the answer to. He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That is key to understand what we're talking about this morning. Of course, the answer is not by the works of the law, but it was by the hearing of faith. 
Again, his language is very, it's intense. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? They had been drifting back towards the believing that they were saved by works, saved by keeping the law. Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? What's Paul referring to? They had suffered for the cause of Christ. They had suffered for the gospel. And he said, are you really willing to leave what you have suffered for and just leave it all as, as it was in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice the order here. As Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. There is no indication that Abraham worked first, then believed God. He believed God, and then it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, here's where he really puts the crux of the matter. He says, Know ye therefore that ye which are of faith, the same, the same, are the children of Abraham. This idea that you are the same as Abraham is, is not in personality, not in outward appearance, but the same in faith. His faith is your faith. Your faith is His faith. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. And notice again, we see those powerful words such as foreseeing that God would justify. We've been learning this entire chapter that justification is by God. God is the one that justifies. Man does not justify himself. Man has never justified himself. Man has never determined his own legal standing by any work of obedience that he has done. Remember, justification is a legal standing before God. Only God can justify. And it was for foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Similar to the phrase the same, So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So if we are in the faith, we are as blessed, equally blessed, with faithful Abraham. Now if... If he meant by the works of the law, which he didn't, then that would be saying that if faithful Abraham was faithful because of his works of the law, then that would say that we can only be found faithful if we keep the law. That's not what he's saying. It's the exact opposite. The reason that Abraham was called faithful was not because that he had did, done works. He was called faithful because he believed God. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. That's pretty definitive, isn't it? If you think that the works of the law save you, you are still under the curse. You are not in the faith. You are not a part of God. There is no work that you could do that would justify you before a holy God. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Here's what Paul means. If you are saved by the works of the law, then unless you keep every single one of them, every point, every paragraph, every jot, every tittle, you are still cursed. He basically says, here's your option. You, if you're saved by the works of the law, that means you have to be perfectly obedient in everything in your life, always. 
Now that, that just disqualified everybody in this room because there's no way you can keep all the works of the law. There's no way you can be perfectly obedient. None of us can, including myself. None of us could keep the law. Paul is not stating that, saying, here's the two options. He's, he's basically putting it out there. There's no way this can be the case. But that no man, here's why it matters, no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. No man. No man is justified in the sight of God, which is ultimately, folks, all that matters. I do not have to be justified in your sight. You do not have to be justified in my sight, but you must be justified in the sight of God. I don't determine your justification. If you were to come up to me and give me a list of the works that you've done this week, first of all, I would tell you those are great, but those aren't justifying you. They're not keeping you. There's nothing you can do that is adding to your, pres- your standing in the sight of God other than His justifying grace. I love what Paul says here. It is evident. The just shall live by faith. We live the way we do because we are justified. We don't live a certain way to become justified. The just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. The man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So what's happening here? Paul is now announcing that there was only one who could keep this perfect obedience. There was only one who could become a curse for us, and that's Christ. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is one of the clearest demonstrations of how the Old Testament saints were saved. Galatians 3 is a classic passage that shows us that Paul, as he's, he's challenging their thinking again, and he's talking about why we've received the things that we have received. Now, we know that after we're saved, after we're justified, that process of sanctification begins. And sanctification is, in fact, a real uh, process. It's happening. We are, becoming, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. But unbelief, unbelief never works towards sanctification. So in other words, if I'm an unbeliever, I am not presently being sanctified. It is an inappropriate statement to say that the whole world is being sanctified. They're not. An unbeliever is not undergoing the process of sanctification. They must be in Christ to be being sanctified. Unbelief only leads to more sin. Our good works are the fruit of our sanctification, not the causes of it. In other words, if we are doing good works, if you are doing good things, it's the result of your sanctification, not of you being justified. So if you're doing good works, it's a result of what's taken place, not a result of acquiring something. What we would have to be saying is if if Abraham saved himself by keeping the works, that means Abraham had a sense of sanctification before he was ever justified. That's impossible. The only reason Abraham did the things he did is because he was already justified. 
And unsanctified Abraham doesn't take Isaac on Mount Moriah. Don't fool yourself in thinking that that, he took him there because he was unjustified. He took him there because he was justified and he acted in obedience because he was being sanctified. Abraham was not saved by the works of the law. Abraham was saved because he believed in God. Sanctification and justification have to be treated separately. They are separate transactions. There's something different happening there. If you've been justified, if you're standing before God is proper, you are being sanctified. Sanctification is not something you can avoid. You can't be justified and say, I like justification, but I don't want to be sanctified. You have no choice in that matter. You are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. It's the fruit of your justification. So if we have gone out in our own strength to try to acquire our own salvation, or we've gone out trying to add to our own justification, we are fooling ourselves. Sanctification does not come to us by some self-reliance, but it's a work of the Spirit, the Spirit working in us. God who's made us, God who's given us wisdom, He's given us righteousness, sanctification is there for us to bear the image and the likeness of our Savior. Not Our works are not saving us. Notice what he says again in verse 10. Or verse 7, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. There is no communion with God except by faith. I don't care how close to keeping the law you've been. Without faith, there is no communion with God. You can never please God in yourself. You can never please God in your own works. No matter how good they seem, no matter how many people they help, no matter how caring you appear to be, You cannot please God apart from Christ. Faith is the very key to heaven. Faith is the key that stands justified before God. The works of the law will not bring you nearer to God. Now I know some of us have been taught all of our lives, if I want to be near to God, I just got to do more, 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 more. You're starting on a wrong starting point. If, if, that's your, if that's your pulpit ministry, is driving people, like just driving them by the whip and saying, you've got to do more, you've got to do more, you've got to do more, you're giving them a sense that by their doing more, they're getting closer to God. Nearness to God is not coming in how much work you do. Nearness to God, first of all, is based upon your standing before God, which is justification. Now, should I want to do good works? Absolutely. But you can get so busy doing good works for God, you're not even concerned about your walk with Him. You're just doing. Now again, don't take this to mean that we don't have to do anything because Paul's already dealt with that in the book of Romans by saying, listen, this is not a license to sin. This is not a license to do what you want. Just keep these things in a proper perspective. When we're under the sense of even our own backsliding away from God, we begin to feel as if we're even unworthy to be called God's children. So when we start to move away from him, when we start to stray like lost sheep, we don't run back to the law. We run back to God. The backslider doesn't come back from the wilderness by running back to the law. He comes back from the wilderness by running back to God. That's a key. That's a key to this. It's belief, it's faith. 
Just as the sinner, by faith, placed his trust in Jesus Christ as his substitute, when we run back to God, again, it's by faith we run to him. Paul does say in verse 10, for as many as are, the, are, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The true gospel is not new. I cringe when I hear people use this word, the New Testament gospel. The gospel is not new. The gospel is all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15. When God announces, I will crush, his, I will crush the head of the serpent. He's, he's announcing there's going to be a provision. Now I understand that as it was being given and being heard... Before man was even driven from the garden, it has since been repeated in many ways, in many places, even to this day. The gospel is not a new gospel. It's the old gospel. And what we're calling people to do when we proclaim a gospel today is we're not proclaiming something new. We are proclaiming that which has always been. That's always been the gospel. A belief in God. Not just His existence but a belief in this God who would be this substitute. We listen to the voice. The gospel blessing which was preached to Abraham and to his seed came to him by faith. Abraham was justified by his faith, not by the works of the law. The blessing which is this very soul of Abraham's gospel comes to us in the same way as it did to him, by faith. I trust in God today by faith. I trust in a God I've never seen. I trust in a Christ I've never spoken to face to face. I am trusting fully 100% by faith. Showing me a tomb where they laid Jesus' body is not going to change my faith. It's not going to make it any stronger. Telling me you found the remnants of the cross is not going to make my faith any stronger. Telling me you found the Dead Sea Scrolls, found Noah's Ark, found a copy of the original autographs, you're not going to change my faith. It's not going to strengthen anything because it's always been by faith. Abraham trusted in that which he could not see. Don't get the idea that, Jesus, that, that Abraham was sitting there with his mind's eye saying, here's how it's going to go down. One day, this Messiah is going to go to the cross. His name's going to be Jesus Christ. He's going to be crucified on an old Roman cross. And all of his disciples are going to flee from him. That wasn't even in view yet. But he believed the promises of God. So how was the Old Testament saints saved? They were saved by faith. If we expect to find faith any other way, we make an eternal mistake. So if I sit here today and I think my faith is in part or in whole by any of my obedience to the law, you are thinking falsely. You are not kept even in the keeping of the law in any way, shape, or form. So now how does this apply? We always want to start with the scripture before we go to the confession because the scriptures supersede our confession, but the confession gives us the framework for why we or what we believe. Here's what paragraph 6 of chapter 11, justification says. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justifications of believer, justification of believers under 
the New Testament. There has always and will only be one way to be justified. There is no other part coming. Uh, Sadly, there are people who believe that there's another way of justification coming. And we're not going to get too deep into this today based upon what they believe about the end times. They think there's going to be this extra framework of time that once they see that certain people are gone, then we'll revisit the opportunity. The command is to repent and believe now. Nobody should be waiting for that time frame that may come. So it was proven even all the way back in chapter 7, which we're going to, in the confession here in a moment, we're going to return back to that in just a moment, that there's only always been one way to be saved or justified in God's sight, namely through faith in Christ. We've looked at passages, and this is one of the passages mentioned there in the confession is Romans 4, uh, that doesn't point us to verses 5 through 8, but we'll read that again. Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. But to him that worketh not, but believe, believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's the same wording that Paul used to describe Abraham in Galatians 3. It was counted unto him for righteousness. There's a big difference in counted unto him and actually acquiring it on his own. If you drop down to verse 5, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Paul brings Romans, or brings it to David in the book of Romans into the equation and says, not only Abraham, but David. Now you've got two, let's just use this terminology, two Jewish heroes. Even to the Jews today, Abraham and David, are still Jewish heroes. Both of them were justified by faith, not by the works of the law. David was not kept or saved because of his acts of obedience. You say, well, what about when God said, David, a man after God's own heart? It wasn't because David was perfect in works. David could not keep the law perfectly, and he didn't. Abraham could not keep the law perfectly, and he didn't. There's not a single Old Testament saint that did everything the law demanded of them every single time. So you cannot come to the conclusion that anybody was saved by the works of the law. There's no New Testament saint that's saved by the works of the law. Yet there are churches all over this world that are leading people down a path to believe that if they just do the right works, they're going to secure their own justification. It isn't happening, folks. You're leading people down a path that is wrong. It's a path that will never end up standing right before God. So we see that David and Abraham, this counted unto them for righteousness, they received an imputed righteousness from God through faith. Abraham is therefore the father of all believers who received the same imputed righteousness. Romans 4.11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised. Notice that. That he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. 
you and I just got pulled in directly to the scriptures. We are those, these that are being referred to. We are those who are uncircumcised, yet we, it is not inappropriate for you and I to call Abraham Father Abraham, even though we're not Jews. We can go all the way down the line of in the book of Romans about how we're grafted in. It really is a beautiful picture of what justification really is. So what do we know? Well, we've answered the question already. How were the Old Testament saints saved? Uh, They were saved in the same manner in which the New Testament saints were. There is no difference. We've seen that from scriptures from Galatians 3 and now in Romans 4. And if you're still at Romans 4, drop down to verses 22 through 24. And therefore, this is reference to Abraham again, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. I love when scripture is so clear. And yet, Scripture is so clear, yet there are so many people today who are still struggling with the false reality that they are somehow keeping themselves saved or they have justified themselves by acts of good works. This draws it all the way back. The very reason that Abraham had this righteous imputed into him was based on faith. But it wasn't just written so that you and I would read about his sake and read about how, must, how good it must be to Abraham because Abraham is justified. He's not writing this so we stand back and we say, boy, I wish I had something that Abraham said. No, he says, but this is for us also. The Gentiles to whom it shall be imputed if we keep the works of the law. Is that what it says? No. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, there is the faith of justification. Paul doesn't mention anywhere with regard to Abraham his works changing his legal standing before God. Anything that we do, anything that we do in the Christian faith that we think is saving us or keeping us saved, we have a false notion about what justification really is. It's not always easy for us to separate these two thoughts. There is this, by way of an application, there is this idea of, and I'm going to say this carefully, of church life. There's my church life, and then there's my private and my personal life. First of all, there is no difference. I don't, I don't divide my, my Christian life into these divisions where I say, okay, now when I go to church, I'm in my church life, and then when I go to work, I'm in my public life, and then when I'm at home, I'm in my private life. Every one of those divisions is part of the sanctification process. Again, sanctification is not justifying you. Sanctification is the fruit of your justification. So when I do good works at church, and why I'm saying this is because people tend to put the emphasis who have a little, even just the slightest belief that their works have saved them or keep them, they overemphasize their church life. And they say, now if I really want to do a grand thing for God, I really need to get involved in the church. 
Now, I don't know a gathering of believers who's going to look at you if you're offering and say, I want to get involved in the local ministry I'm a part of. I don't know any church going to say, you know what, we really don't need you. I don't know one. If you come up to me and you say, look, pastor, I don't know what I can do, but I, can I help with the church in some way, shape, or form? I guarantee you I'll not say, no, we got it. I, I would never tell you no. However, if you're doing that because you're trying to pad your church life because it's adding to your account, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Because you're not adding anything to it. Now, you say, I don't know why you're, you're spending so much time on this. Because there are those who believe this for so long that they forget, what about all of those works, the fruit of my justification, when I go to my workplace? I don't see those. Your church doesn't see those. Your family, your church family has no idea what you're facing on a day-to-day basis. But I would even submit to you, what about your private life? What about the time when it's just you and God alone? Where did we lose sight of the reality that that is an important part of our worship? Some people's Christian life is what you're looking at right here. This is it. This is it right here. Sunday morning, that's it. That's, I don't have a private life. I don't have a public life. This is my Christian life. That's not the way God intended it to be. What God did intend it to be is that our, sanct- our justification, our sanctification would filter into every aspect of our lives. When I leave here in a couple of hours, I don't think about now I go into my public and private life. No, I'm just still living the Christian life. I don't really like that term, the Christian life, because it just it opens up so many different things for people. The point is, is no works in your public, private, or church life are adding a single ounce of your justification. None of it. Now, I know that because I know what that was to grow up around it. So some of this I'm speaking to you from experience. Such a weight of guilt of not being able to live up to the law, yet somehow I could take comfort in my salvation, but I always felt burdened that I wasn't doing enough. That's putting an inordinate emphasis on works. Now, you shouldn't have to ask a believer to do good works because the Bible says actually that should, come norm- that should come naturally. It's an outflow of your conversion. A pastor shouldn't have to spend, or an elder or whoever standing up, even if, even if, it's a, if somebody who's not even in the ministry, shouldn't have to beg us to serve God. You shouldn't have to offer prizes for attendance. You shouldn't have to offer prizes for doing something. So all you can do is stand up and just give the truth of God's word. And here's what God's word says, that if we're truly in the faith, works are going to follow. God didn't beg Abraham to do good works. But he sure declared that Abraham was not saved by good works. He was justified by faith and the good works followed. That's what led him to offer up Isaac fully intended to do whatever God told him to do, including plunging that knife into his chest, if that's what God said. Although Abraham probably had some ideas about what God would actually ask him to do. But he was willing. 
So let's finish this by thinking about this justification in the Old Testament or Old Covenant believers. We've come to the conclusion it's one and the same. There is no difference. If you go all the way back to, in your confession, go all the way back to chapter 7 and look at paragraph 3. We covered this months ago. Uh, We didn't touch on it very much at that time. But in chapter 7, paragraph number 3, I want to draw your attention back to the eternal covenant transaction that took place. This is key to understanding this. Chapter 7, paragraph 3. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So what's that teaching us? This covenant was revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam. The gospel did not start in Matthew chapter 1.1. Okay, that's... (laughs) And isn't it interesting that none of the epistles in the Old Testament are called the gospel according to uh, the gospel of Genesis, the gospel of Exodus. So we can get the idea, oh, the gospel, brand new thing, starts with Matthew 1.1. No, this is all part of the eternal covenant. The transaction took place before the foundation of the world. Now, the full discovery of it, that's the key, the full discovery of it was completed in the New Testament. And it's founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. Notice again the emphasis, the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Notice that. Even Adam in his state of innocency could not stand accepted before God. He needed faith. All part of the eternal transaction. Now go over to chapter 8 and look at verse 6, paragraph 6. This covers what we refer to as the retroactive benefits of Christ's work. People often say, well, the Old Testament people couldn't be saved the same way because Christ had not gone to the cross yet. Since when... Did we limit Christ's work on the cross to a time frame? Does everybody understand what I'm saying? That's the way that people do it. They say, okay, everybody up to the cross was saved this way. Everybody after the cross was saved this way. Who invented that? Because somebody created it. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. So you mean to tell me that Christ's work on the cross was limited to the fact that it could only be for those who lived after the cross? And that some, because of that, everything before the cross had to be saved some other way. Why? Why would that be the case? It's not. If you look at this paragraph we studied on the mediator from chapter 8, remember this, paragraph 6. And we just learned this a couple, a couple weeks ago in one of these paragraphs in chapter 11. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, sacrifices wherein he was revealed 
and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. And there is five scripture references that point all to this. A couple things. First of all, notice that the price of redemption paid after his incarnation. We understand what that means. But the efficacy and the benefit was communicated to the elect in all ages successively. Nobody's arguing that there's been time periods. I don't have to convince you that before 2021 was 2020. Does everybody agree with that? (laughs) I mean, in our day of relative truth, somebody out there saying, no, actually, it probably was 2019. No, it's 2021. It was 2020. Successive ages. And before that, we all see the pattern was 2019, 2018, 2017. I won't insult our intelligence. We understand what's happening. Successive ages. Okay? Whether it's 2021 or 1921, the way of salvation is exactly the same. Successive ages doesn't mean the message had to change or the means had to change. But there's a whole system of teaching that's teaching exactly opposite of what I just said. Depending on what time frame you lived in, that determined how you were saved. That's called dispensationalism. In the classic sense of dispensationalism is that in different ages, God dealt with man differently, and as a result, you were saved differently. That's not what the Bible teaches. I do agree it teaches in successive ages. That even all the way back into Adam, there was an understanding that there was something necessary. Promises, types, sacrifices. Think about this for a moment. In the garden, they had no idea about all the sacrifices, all the types, and all the shadows that the other Old Testament saints would know. There were no sacrifices yet. The first idea of a sacrifice came when they were covered with animal skins. But if you would have talked to Adam and Eve about the tabernacle and the temple, they would have said, what in the world's a tabernacle and what in the world's a temple? What are those for? So here we stand in 2021, and it is 2021, by the way, no matter what someone says it is. It's 2021, and yet we look back over time, and there is a common thread running all the way through the Old Testament, all the way down through successive ages, all the way to the New Testament, that salvation and justification has always been by faith. And yet, there are those who still say that, no, what about dispensations? That people were saved differently. Quite simply, dispensationalism in its classic sense teaches that at different points in history, man, including Abraham, was declared to have been saved by his works. I heard a man who is a classic holder to dispensationalism actually admit as such over the last couple of months. He was actually put kind of into a corner by somebody who teaches, believes in covenant theology and believes in only one way of salvation. And he kind of got a little flustered and he said, yes, I believe that Abraham was saved by works. And I thought, that, sir, is frightening to me. And yet, that's 
what a lot of us, some of you have told me about this, this has been a part of your upbringing. Somewhere in the line, you may not have known it, but when you were told the Bible story about Abraham and you were told the Bible story about David and you were told the Bible stories about Moses, interwoven within those pages was the idea that David, Moses, and Abraham were saved because of what they did, not because of what they believed. And there is a tremendous difference in those two things. David didn't see the cross. Abraham didn't see the cross. Moses and Noah didn't see the cross, but they believed God. So when we think about what's happening here, we've already talked about it, but that verse 9 in Galatians 3 kind of puts a bow on this. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Why? This is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But again, the words it was counted to him were not written just for his sake alone, but for ours as well. It will be counted to those of us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord by faith. I came across this quote from Luther. And again, Martin Luther, we wouldn't necessarily line up. I know it kind of shocks people to the core when I say things like this. We wouldn't necessarily agree with everything that Martin Luther stood for. Now, if you know your Bible history and you know some of that, you would know there are some things that we just, we could not take a stand with Luther. But he did say this about justification. He said, justification is the article of a falling or a standing church. With that, I agree. What you think about justification will determine whether a church will fall or it'll stand. And if my justification in any way, shape, or form is based upon the keeping or the works of the law, that church ultimately is going to fall. But if, if justification is on faith, is by faith alone through Jesus Christ, that church will ultimately stand. Now, I don't believe Luther had in his mind's eye at all numbers. Okay, we are, a, we are a society of numbers. Wherever the most people are going, it's got to be the right way. Folks, Jesus himself never said, go where everybody else is going. He always said that, that way of the right way is going to be the narrow way. It's going to be where there are not many people going. There'll be few that are going to find it. Folks, don't get spooked and scared off because you don't see a herd of people going down this trail that we're talking about. And everybody seems to be going down the dispensational trail. That doesn't mean they're right. And by the way, just a piece of advice, that's true about anything in life. Just because everybody's going one way doesn't mean you have to go that way. And by the way, that's really easy for us to succumb to. It's really hard to be, find yourself standing in a, in a church that teaches dispensationalism and find out, wait a minute, something's wrong with my spirit. Something's wrong. I'm not seeing. I've been told I'm supposed to believe this, but I don't see the connection. Don't apologize for where you stand on justification. So next week, we have been in the confession, I think now, for almost a year again. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. Not, maybe not quite that long. But we're going to take a break briefly, and we're going to do a study of the book of Obadiah. Now, there's a good one, Obadiah. It's a very short, it's one, basically one chapter, 21 verses. So we're going to take a couple of weeks. We're going to study that book beginning next Sunday, and then we're going to come back to the confession and start chapter 12 
which is on the subject of adoption. Okay, so, so next week, Obadiah. So if you want to, let me challenge you to read the whole book by next Sunday. Okay, if you can't read 21 verses between now and next Sunday, you've got your time priorities wrong. 21 verses. Okay, read a little bit about the background. Get yourself a good commentary after you read it. See if you can get some background information. It'll help you going forward as we study that Old Testament book. Okay? All right, well, let's pray this morning, and then we'll be dismissed for just a little bit. We'll start at 11.05 today, so it's, it's 10 till, and uh, then we'll, we'll move into our, our worship service this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time we've had in your word. And Lord, thank you for the clarity. Uh, Lord, to know that your word is so very clear about where our standing in Christ is where it has arisen from, and how it stands. Father, help us to not be led astray and be deceived by the worthiness of our own works, but may we just simply rejoice in the realities of the finished work of Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can have this assurance. We we are thankful that we can stand, and we can stand boldly and courageously on the truth of your word. Lord, we realize that taking a stand for the truth not only in this generation, but in generations to come and even in previous generations. Oftentimes, we may find ourselves standing nearly alone. The Lord, help help us not to treat that as what's right and what's wrong by the numbers. But may we truly stay true to your word. Lord, we thank you for this time. Bless this time of fellowship that we have and prepare our hearts to gather again in just a little while. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen.